I'm like, just bring songs about the gospel of Jesus Christ, because that's the salute. There's no songs about spiritual deception, right? That wouldn't be like a joy, right, for us to come in here and say, oh, Lord, you sayeth that we're deceived, right? There's no songs written on that. So bless her heart, she's trying to, they don't really know what to do with me. But yes, I've entitled this message, The Danger of Spiritual Deception This Morning. And there's heavy notes, as always. Uh, there's also a PowerPoint that I said I wouldn't do. But I said I would always wear a tie in the pulpit, and I'm not doing that anymore. So I'm pretty inconsistent. But hey, I want to be consistent about this. Who has the Word of God with them this morning? Get it up. Get it up high. Put it up higher than your heart. And may it stay there throughout the rest of the week, okay? I'm not, I'm, <laughs> you're expecting some like crazy poem or saying right now, I don't have one, okay? But here's what I'll tell you, one thing that's kind of cool you may not know. You know, um, the Jews still to this day, they have, you know, the idea of, they put the, the word of God in their head, they had phylacteries on their head and they had one on their arm, right? And they actually had the word of God, they had the word of God in there. And look at those biceps, you see those? I'm just kidding. But it's, it's right here, the phylacteries. And do you know why? Actually, it's right here. I'm in the medical field. I should know this. Because it's close to your heart. Right? That's why they have the phylacteries right there, because it's close to your heart. Okay? So isn't that a beautiful picture? So the head and the heart, may the Lord guard and protect us uh, in those two places. So this is a greater conversation. This is what happens when I don't preach week by week. You kind of get bits and pieces of a sermon uh, series. And the series really is salvation. Salvation. I started off a few weeks ago with a, a, with a young man named Dirk. And I told you his story and how um, we need to be careful when we're trying to articulate what's going on in the life of other people. And we need to be very careful because the Lord Jesus Christ tells us, as we'll see today, to be very careful. But here's the idea is when we, in our, starting in our own lives, when we see inconsistencies with the gospel that we proclaim, with our own lifestyle, all of us should stop and say, sums off. There's a worship disorder happening here. Is I'm settling back into my old, old ways, my old habits, whatever those are. And I'm to walk in the newness of life. I'm to live for Christ. Jesus died for me so that I'd no longer live for myself. So if you find yourself, like we all do, sliding back into that idea of living for yourself, then you really need to ask yourself some questions. And number one was, could it be, and I like that Understanding, because I don't want to come at you in the accusative this morning. I want you to explore what's going on in your own heart. And the Holy Spirit, he's big enough to meet you there if you're real and you're transparent with him. He already knows, but the first place I would start if I'm trying to figure out where is this person in light of salvation? Have they been born again to the living hope? I'll start off with, could it be that they've forgotten the gospel. So that was the danger of spiritual amnesia. That was part one. 
That's been recorded. And let me say something by way of people watching and those who haven't had a chance to get the notes. I, I did put the notes in, in, the sermon, um, in the sermon part of our website. They are there for those of you who are watching because I'm, in about, I'm about ready to drop a thousand ideas on you right now. And you'll be able to go back to a nice little prepared document where I, I really want you to take this and really survey your own heart, which I'll tell you at the end as well. So let's just say you're talking to them and they're like, you know, it, it could be that I have forgotten. I have forgotten the gospel. Um, I, when I came to Christ, I lived like this. I changed in this way and I was consistent and then life happened. Something hard hit me in my situation and then I started living this way and you live this way consistently and then you talk to somebody else and they, maybe they walked through you with Pete and Peter's message and say, could it be that you've forgotten? They say, absolutely. That's exactly what happened to me. Is I have, I've forgotten the gospel. So I, I need to go, today I need to rededicate, maybe they use words like this, re, recommit my life to Jesus Christ. And it's just that aligning back up with that heart of worship towards the Lord. But what if, what if somebody says, you know, I'm not sure if that's me. I'm, I've, I've looked at what Peter has to say. Yeah, Peter had forgotten. But that's not me. Well, the next question I would ask is, could it be that you have been deceived? Could it be that you have been deceived? The idea of spiritual deception is a reality in, in which we live. We were part of a, um, a, a counseling ministry. We still are, but this was somewhere else. I'll never forget a guy, I'll just say his name is Carl. And Carl comes to us for help. He's coming from another church. Uh, he's five years into marriage. Him and his, his wife is a blended family. They both have kids. And Carl uh, is reaching out for help because he's having really tough marriage problems. And so we meet with Carl, begin to meet with him and his wife, and, um, you know, we go through some of the things that I'm talking about, is could it be that you've forgotten the gospel? And, and he's, he's no, that's, that's not what happened. Well, could it be that you've been deceived by the gospel, by, by false teaching? I don't think so, I don't think so. So counseled him for nearly six months, it began to, as life is unfolding and things are happening in his life, I began to get his timeline. Timeline and triggers are a big thing when you're meeting with people. And the family tree is important and a blended family. I wanted to see what exactly was Carl's family line here. And I never forget, he told me briefly what was going on and, and I was sitting there with a blank stare in my face. Like, I need to draw this out. I really do. I need to draw it out. So I have a whiteboard, old school whiteboard in my office. And I just, I drew it out and I said, okay, so you, um, you have a son, okay, and this is him. And he was married to her. Okay, so they're, they're, they're there. Those two had uh, kids, okay. So there's kids going down there and they're, they're still younger. Um, these two uh, ended up getting divorced. They, they broke up. So the wife goes one way, the son goes the other way. This is, this is your son that goes that way, Carl, and this is his wife. And now, you mean to tell me that your wife 
is your daughter's wife? Or your son's wife? Guys, I was blown away. I'm like, what in the world? Lord, I believe right now. Let me put it in, 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 in very simple language. You know the book of Leviticus actually addresses this? That's why you got to be careful with your interpretation. Because you know what the book of Leviticus says to do with people who, have, who, who are in a sexual affair with their daughter-in-law? It says to take them out with stones and to kill them. And so I'm new in the biblical counseling movement, and I'm just like knocking on my senior pastor's door. Hey, we've got a case study. You've got to see this. Look, it says right here in Leviticus that we're to take them out. I said, we, we live in the backwoods of Shingletown. Nobody will even know. We have people there with cats. They call them tractors. Cats, right? I had to figure that out the hard way. People working on these cats. They sound so little precious, right? But they're big tractors with big old claws. And we can get them to dig something up back there. We can take care of this right now. I said, no, no, calm down. Let's see this in its context. And let's see where we're at in the redemptive history of Christ. And... I had everybody, the top counselors that I know, I was sitting under them, and I'm like, what do I do? Because now they're married, and to make, I put icing on the cake, they were married by a, like a solid preaching church in town. And to, to put even more icing on the cake, they went for premarital counseling. I was just blown away. I didn't know what to do with Carl. So everybody, and, and by the way, you guys all have a thousand different opinions on what you should do with them. But here's what, here's what we came to the conclusion that don't make an evil worse. Just work with what you have in front of you and just try to see what God's going to do in the midst of this chaos and this ugliness. And we did, and we kept meeting. And time went on, and time went on. And then I started hearing him talking about Carl would come in and he'd be frustrated. I said, why are you frustrated, Carl? He says, well, I'm looking around in the parking lot. People have nice cars here. And I, I talk to people and they have nice houses here. And, and people are wearing nice clothes here. And they have nice material things here. And I just, I just wonder why I don't have these things. Why? I said, Carl, who, are you, who do you read at home? Like, who's next to your nightstand, Right? And Carl said, uh, Kenneth Copeland, he's my hero. Okay. Um, I have Sarah Young next to my nightstand, Jesus Colin. Okay. I have the Book of Mormon next to my nightstand. All right. I have Jehovah Witnesses version of the Bible next to my night. I'm not joking. Next to my nightstand. And I had to stop at this point and assess. We're doing that a lot. Where this man who professed to be a Christian, at least by way of what he believed, was completely different than the gospel. Completely different. Oh, you may be saying, oh, well, how? Well... Sarah Young thinks that she could talk to Jesus audibly and write it down in a book and Christians spend more time reading that than they do the Word of God. Ouch! If people are passing stuff out in this church, it's going to be the Word of God. 
Kenneth Copeland, if you don't know who he is, he's a health and wealth prosperity teacher where his idea of the gospel is that he's a little God like Jesus Christ. Oh! So it's no wonder my friend Carl was looking at the cars in the parking lot saying, where's my blessing, Lord? You're like my giant ATM machine up on high, and I just, I just pray to you, and boom, it happens. It's not God's will for anybody to suffer. That's Kenneth Copeland's belief. And so I had to do something with that. And so I went into a deep study of this idea of the danger of spiritual deception. And over the course of time, and yes, we did meet for, for a long time. It wasn't, it wasn't abrasive. It was in love as a pastor trying to reach out with the gospel. Where I, I, I thought that the starting point was here with the word of God. But it actually wasn't even near there at all. It was somewhere out here. And in order for him to go to where I wanted to take him, he had to come to the same starting point. In other words, he had to receive the gospel of Jesus Christ. He had to be born again to the living hope. His heart had to be changed from the inside out. And that would become the starting point. But what was in the middle of that starting point was the danger of spiritual deception. My friend Carl had been deceived. And if you're here this morning... And you're like, man, you are very unloving, the things that you're saying up there. Look, I'll take one for the team, and I will ask for forgiveness if my personality is abrasive to you. But I'd let, the, hear me out. I'm doing it in love as a pastor who would rather you get right today with God versus what you're going to see in Matthew chapter 7. Because that just keeps me awake at night thinking about that. So let's define spiritual deception. Again, I'm piggybacking a lot on my content from my good friend and mentor, Dr. Nicholas Ellen. So I give credit where credit's due. But the definition of spiritual deception is the belief that you have a relationship with God and are a part of his eternal kingdom when in actuality, Jesus does not have a relationship with you, leaving you outside the eternal kingdom. You know, we would cultivate a relationship, Carl and I, and I was convinced his wife was a Christian, but based off his profession, he wasn't. So we went through a deep, deep side-by-side, -side, learning together, Bible open, praying that the Holy Spirit would do what he, only he can do in the heart, and praying that I would not get in the way of that. And so I began to show him what I'm going to show you this morning in a micro version of our time together. Some of you are like, we've got this counselor here. And I just think that some of you guys think that they've hired some psychotherapist here, and he's just over there taking care of everybody, charging by way of hourly rate. That's not what's going on at all. You have a pastor who counsels. Okay? You have a pastor who believes that the Word of God has everything it needs for life and godliness. You have a pastor that does not stray from the Word. You have a pastor who doesn't need to take anything else that the world has to offer and take it in here so that we put our little hermeneutical gymnastic glasses on and we begin to say, oh, that's what the Word of God teaches because I'm going to bring it in there and make it say that. No, no. You have a pastor who has 
spent a lot of his life in seminary in the trenches seeking to understand what this book means by what it says. And you have a pastor who's gone beyond that to take that, ver that message of the gospel and to bring it into the lives of people and watch what the Holy Spirit does as they walk in obedience to him. So if you're like, hey, when we brought the guy on, I thought he was a therapist. <laughs> no, but you guys still have the power to vote me out. It's a congregational rule. If you want, go, go for it. Time out! <laughs> so, let's look at this. There is a guy in the Bible. His name is Judas. There's a guy in the Bible. His name is Judas, and he gave us a demonstration of what spiritual deception looks like. And that's why I said to you guys this morning, get your Bibles out. Open them up. Yes, I put PowerPoint up. They're going to take control of that up there. But if you have your scriptures with you, I'm re reading personally out of the English Standard Version. And I'm going to begin in chapter 26 of Matthew, verses 1 to 5. And we're going to see this introduction to the plot to kill Jesus. This is where it begins in Matthew 26. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. You know, that'll preach somewhere else. I don't have time to do that. But a side note, Jesus is just saying this nonchalantly, right? You know, <laughs> of course you know that after the Passover, that's the detail, the Son of Man will be delivered over to be crucified before it was even talked about. Jesus, on three different occasions, it's called the Passions, and Mark tells his disciples that this is what is coming. I am going to die. I am going to die at the hands of men. These men are going to put me on a tree. It's called a cross. I will die there, and I will raise again three days. Who talks like that? Jesus talks like that. So he says this, and in verse 3, then the chief priests and the elders of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar among the people. So that's the introduction of the plot to kill Jesus. Number two, just the next passage down, verse 6 to 13, you're going to see that Judas becomes one of the indignant disciples. I just want you to see how this builds, okay, in the scriptures. So there's this plot to kill Jesus. Now, now you're going to see one of the twelve become indignant. Verse 6, now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a large sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. And pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. 
Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be also told in memory of her. So Jesus' agenda is started with, I'm going to a cross, I'm going to die. And then you see the plot start to happen with the religious leader saying, we are going to kill you before that happens, not even knowing that that's part of God's sovereign plan. And then you have Jesus with his disciples and a woman who's more in tune than the disciples. And she comes to Jesus and pours expensive ointment on Jesus. Why? For the burial. For the plan that Jesus talked about. And you have disciples that are out of tune at the moment with Jesus Christ. And they're becoming indignant. And who do you think is becoming most indignant? I don't think it's Peter. Yeah, Peter failed on the suffering of Christ. You see that in Mark chapter 8. But I don't think that's what's going on here. Who's in charge of the money? Judas. This is how deceptive our hearts are, you guys. We could be doing something that could be a good thing, like handling money, but we could be so out of touch with the Lord Jesus Christ. And, th and here you see it. So he is indignant at this idea. So I don't know what's going on in the heart. I can tell you, I can move in on that from James and things that are talked about there, but I'm not going to go too far. All I know is there's something stirring in him. It's indignant. It's going to make him, if he keeps walking in this direction, it's going to make him go a certain direction. The fruit will show up. And you see that in verses 14 to 16. Judas initiates the plan to kill Jesus. Now he's part of the plan and he's part of the initiation process. It says, then one of the twelve whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Twelve disciples with Jesus. One's indignant now. One's not in tune with what he's doing. One's going out of his way to meet with these religious leaders, going to the top person and saying, hey, well, how much money can you give me? You guys understand? I mean, this is a side note, but God does not need money to do ministry. You guys know that? And, and here you see it. This guy selling his Lord and Savior out from that indignation that takes place in his heart, and he's seeking an opportunity, he begins to initiate this plan. And then, verses 17 to 25, Judas is now going to inquire about the plan to kill Jesus. 17. Now on the, the first day of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? He said, Go into the city to a certain man and say to him, The teacher says... My time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. So the woman is in tune with Jesus' plan with the alabaster jar. And now this guy that's on the outside is in tune with Jesus' plan. And, and here go the disciples that are just kind of walking with Jesus. You have one that's ready at any moment to sell him out. And what is Jesus doing? Jesus still continues on with what he came to do. Verse 20, 
When it was evening, he reclined at table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful and began to say to him one after another, Is it I, Lord? He answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to the man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas, it's amazing how guilt works in the heart, right? Jesus is not directly pointing things out. He's just simply saying, one of you is going to betray me. He let them have their little conversation with each other. Is it I? It's not me. Is it, is it you? It's not me. And they're probably a little bit careful. Well, not really. Because Peter later is going to have the same thing going on by way of Jesus selling him out. But these, these disciples are, are having this back and forth. with one, It's one of us. Jesus saying it's one of us. And then Judas speaks up. And he, Judas, in verse 25, who would betray him, answered, is it I, Rabbi? And he said, that is Jesus said to him, you have said so. Oh, man. To hear the pencil drop in this room. Now, he's seeing that the, the truth of Hebrews 4, 13, right? At the throne of judgment, Everything will be laid bare before the one whom he must give an account. That's becoming true to Judas right now on earth. That everything that I've done is coming to bear. I'm right in front of the judge, Jesus Christ. And Jesus says to me, and I say to him, is it I? And he says, you, you have said so. You're going to sell me out. So you have this inquiry, and then at number five in the notes, Judas imposes the plan in his betrayal of Jesus in Matthew 26, 47 to 56. And may I just say a side note, that this is not godly sorrow that leads to repentance. This is worldly sorrow. Worldly sorrow is more afraid that you got caught. And, and that's not even operating in his heart right now because there's no conviction of sin at this point. It's just carrying on for him to do what he is doing in his heart, which he's already inquired, he's already initiated, he's imposed it. Now he's going to impose it in verses 47 to 56. Go a little bit further in the text. You see the betrayal and arrest of Jesus. Verse 47, when he was still speaking, Judas one of the twelve with him, and a great crowd with swords and clubs, with the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given him them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. Oh, Peter's knee must have been hurting so bad right there. Peter, who would chop off the ear of the people that would come to Jesus. I just wonder what he's doing at this point. Greetings, Rabbi, he says. And, and he kissed him. He kissed Jesus. And Jesus said in verse 50, Friend, do what you came to do. What? Friend, friend, adoration, language of affection. Do what you came to do. 
I love Jesus Christ. He's a lot different than I am. He doesn't back down at the weight of his very own death and what he's gonna, what's going to happen. He says, just carry on. Go ahead. Then they came and, and laid their hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword back and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said, that's Peter, by the way. Verse 52, then Jesus said to him, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled? And that's the issue, isn't it? This is what Jesus came to do. He didn't come to be served, but he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. It's being carried out just like he said, that he would die in this way, and it's happening exactly how he said. Verse 56, Have you come out, he says, against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching, you did not seize me. But all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Wow. This is a story of spiritual deception. And we'll look lastly at the end game where Judas inflicts death upon himself after the plan to kill Jesus. And that's in Matthew 27, 3 to 10. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, like that had anything to do with it. Again, he got caught. This is his way of trying to make it right. This is for him and his own agenda. This is not for Jesus Christ. People often say, uh, as I've been teaching this passage over the years, did Judas go to heaven? Well, I'll tell you the same thing I told the, the young man who was in my youth group up the hill at Open Door, who would always inquire in the Bible study as I talked about salvation, does that mean my mom is in hell? Does that mean my mom is in hell, Pastor Silva? My mom's Buddhist, so you're telling me my mom's in hell? Look, young man, I, I don't know if your mom's in hell or not, because I would have to know at the time of her death whether or not she put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I don't know that. Did your mom put her faith and trust in Jesus Christ? No. Well, if that's, the, if that's what happens, then she still is going to bear the wrath of God. She still is going to see God as a judge. She's not going to have Christ the Messiah, the Savior, to step into her place. She was willing to step over the dead body of Christ to go to hell. What else could God do for her? But mark my words, the reason we go to hell is because, not because God does not love you, God loves you. The reason we go to hell is because we reject the Son of God. How do I know that? Let's put a passage on it, John 3.36. He who believes in the Son has life, present tense. But he who does not receive the Son does not have life eternal life because the wrath of God remains on him 
You guys, do, we got to have... We got to have a fervor. We got to have a passion as we share the gospel with others. Do we believe that? Yes, I'll throw my hand up first for confession. Sometimes I feel like I'm trying to sell people a min. Go, hey, we're going to go to a Minions movie. You want to go? A Minions movie? Is that what grown men do nowadays? Yeah, I did. <laughs> We make, we make God out to be like a fairy tale, like a fantasy, right? Or, or either that, we make, we make Jesus out to be like the therapist up on high. What are your felt needs? Jesus, the very reason he came is to fulfill those needs. Are you, do you read the same book that I read? Or Jesus wants to be your buddy. There's a little track down there, I was going to take him down. <laughs> Jesus wants to be your best friend. Jesus is Lord on high. Jesus is the one when he said of himself to the religious leaders that would kill him, that you will see me. Are you the son of God? Yes, I am the son of God. Yes, I am God, the son. Yes, when you see those clouds coming from the vision of Daniel chapter 7, I am the one that's on those clouds. I come with the clouds. I come with all the fullness of God's glory. I come with the fullness of God's wrath, the fullness of God's mercy. I'm that guy. Make no mistake about it. Jesus died because he said he was God. You have, to very, you have to grow up in America and not know any historical background whatsoever to come to the claims of the Mormons and the Jehovah Witnesses. Spiritual deception. You have to be in the book. You have to understand what the gospel says by the book. So Judas here inflicts death upon himself. And this becomes one of the most harder, harder pictures to understand in the scriptures. But I think it's there for an example for us to watch out and to be careful of spiritual deception. So, same book in Matthew. Now I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21 to 23. Now, interestingly enough, as you're turning there, same Jesus, much further, I mean, at the very beginning of his ministry, that this is the Sermon on the Mount, which, which we know and love, and this is the culmination, this is the, the, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says this in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, that's scary right there. Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons, in your name and do mighty works in your name and then I will declare to them I never knew you depart from me you workers of lawlessness so Jesus teaches what it means and what it does not mean to call him Lord those who do the will of the Father will enter the kingdom of heaven what's the will of the Father that those would believe that those would believe that those 
there's nobody that God wants to perish. That's the moral will. The sovereign will, which Andrew's going to go into in Romans 9, coming up, has to do with God knowing from the end to the beginning all the details and who will call upon his name. He, he, that doesn't mean that he's choosing the elect that way. It means that before the foundations of time, he already had an elect group of people. Do I know how that works? Absolutely not. But here's what I know. I'm kind of like Spurgeon. How will you know that? You believe in Jesus Christ. You get through the gates of heaven. You look back and it says, chosen before the foundations of the world. Hey, it's me. But this is what it means. Jesus is teaching. This is why it's so scary. It says, on the contrary, those who have been spiritually deceived by their false prophecies, deceitful exorcisms, and counterfeit mighty works, that sounds like Redding, California. You guys, this is why it's so serious. Do we truly love the people that we're trying to minister to, that we're trying to share the gospel with? Guys, it is not, I, I know you guys laugh because you guys know the backdrop behind, behind Redding, but it's not funny because these are people that need the gospel of Jesus Christ. We need to go out of our way to be cultivating relationships with people that have been deceived by these things, that this is their version of Christianity, that all the hype and all the spirituality of all these things that are happening, but there's one thing. You don't have a relationship with Christ. You don't know him. That's why it's so scary. Jesus will say to this group, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So what's going on? Let's, let's bring this kind of home a little bit to where we live. There's obviously a great delusion that takes place with spiritual deception. Delusion in the sense of, I think that this is the reality, but in fact, it's not the reality. So how do we know this? How do we know that there's been a delusion? Well, number one, believing your good works override your sinful lifestyle, resulting in putting confidence in your good works as the avenue to guide you into the eternal kingdom. For example, three of them here. Believing that speaking God's message qualifies you for entrance into the eternal kingdom of God, although your life denies that message. Here's me, a preacher of the gospel, full weight of what this is saying. I can preach the gospel all I want to, but if my life does not line up with the words of the book and I, I'm not doing and building my life upon this book, I can be deceived. Number two, believing that freeing people from the power of evil spirits qualifies you for entrance into the eternal kingdom of God Although your life is dominated by evil spirits. I can do a whole sermon series on this. I'm looking at the time and I'm not going to. But let me say this by way of Judas. Was Judas not one of the 72 that was sent out by Jesus Christ to cast out demons? He was. Today... Do we see this going on a lot? It, it comes in the form of deliverance. You have a problem, you go to a well-intentioned, professing Christian, 
and they say to you, hey, okay, here's the deal. You're struggling with pornography. Let's just pray the demon of pornography out of you. I bet he has a name. Oh, you're struggling with alcohol, drunkenness? You're struggling with drugs? You start, oh, here's a good one. You're struggling with, to forgive that person? Let's just find the demon that, that has control over you. And once we find the demon's name, we'll pray it out in the name of Jesus Christ. Is that what the scriptures teach? Do, tri- do the scriptures negate human responsibility and sin? So, so somebody prays a demon away from you, right? Or, or a, a demon releases his grip, and all of a sudden you're free? I, I, see a, I see a different picture. I see us being bombarded on every level because we have a roaring lion that seeks to devour us, and he tempts us by the pride of life, the flesh, and the eyes. But he's on the outside. God holds me responsible for what I do with it on the inside, in my heart. You take that away from what the scriptures teach, and you have a society that collapses. <laughs> Woo! There's power in here! All the Pentecostals are getting fired up on this side. Look at them. They're like, yeah, get them! <laughs> my wife says, don't yell today, honey. My wife keeps me cool with the calm, cool, collected Baptist, you know. But, like, inside, I'm kind of like, ah, let them out! Let's go! And they're like, amen over there. That's why I sit on this side. My wife's over here. <laughs> Number three, believing that performing great acts that seemingly demonstrate God's power qualifies you for entrance into the kingdom of God, although you have not experienced the great power of God delivering you from evil. Again, you guys, one of the misunderstandings within uh, some of my hyper-charismatic brothers is that they think that we don't believe that God heals. I believe God heals. Absolutely God heals. God can do whatever he wants to do. But scripture teaches me that the normal means that God works is through sanctification, through growing up in the Lord, through pressure, through life, through temptations, through all the thousands of mundane moments become opportunities to glorify God. Pray for healing. Absolutely pray for it. But if God doesn't heal, do you still love Him? Paul and the thorn is a great example of that. Paul prayed three times for the thorn to go away, whatever that was. And then what did he do? He says, if it doesn't go away, this is what I learned, that God's grace is sufficient in the midst of whatever I'm going through, and that by my weakness, God's power is actually stronger. So have a both-and approach. Pray for healing, but also don't be deflated if it doesn't happen. Because you know it's not God's will. God's up to greater things. And what's the greater things? That he's causing you to be more Christ-like. You can't be more Christ-like if you don't have pressure from the outside. So you guys, the pressure's never going to just go away. We need to learn how to live with God through the pressure. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. That God carries us through these temptations. He doesn't sell out, bail out on us. He's with us. That's the gospel. B. Believing your acknowledgement of Jesus Christ as Lord over, overrides your lifestyle in sin. 
resulting in putting confidence in your profession of Jesus as Lord to guide you into the eternal kingdom of God. For example, you may have a verbal confession of Jesus as Lord, but not a moral practice that matches the confession, resulting in believing, or being deceived about your relationship with God. There's a, there's a passage there, you can follow it later, but uh, it was a passage about people that had been deceived, and Paul says to them, but God knows those who are his. Let the one who names the name of the Lord depart from inequity. Depart from it. That's what Paul says in Timothy. Number two, publicly proclaiming Jesus as Lord, but living as if God was not to be sought after or served, resulting in being deceived about your relationship with God. And number three, professing Jesus as Lord, but living as if denying yourself and denying lustful desires are options instead of obligations. Living as if judgment day and the return of Christ were not to be prepared for resulting in being deceived about your relationship with God. So how do you diagnose this real quick? Okay? If we're going to formulate a diagnosis of spiritual deception, it has to be through the Word of God. It can't be from any, any other thing. It has to be through the Word. So I just put together, I kind of piggybacked on Dr. Ellen here, but listen to what he says. It's very helpful. This is a person that propagates a close walk with Jesus as a dis- disciple. Yet in actuality, he is far away from Jesus and his eternal kingdom. One could say that this person has a conviction about sin, but no conversion. This person has a confession of sin, but no correction of sin. This person has a correction of sin, but no change of heart towards his sin. This person has a resolution to change, but no restraint of the will resulting in no change. This person is rejoicing in the truth, but there's no reliance upon that truth he is rejoicing in. This person is promoting Jesus Christ while practicing a satanic life. Those are a string of questions that we have to evaluate our own heart. Are those things happening in our heart? Lastly, I'm going to close with this, because I have to. (laughs) Matthew chapter 7, just go back there. This is the importance of not disconnecting passages to the larger context of what's going on. Because Jesus gives the solution to spiritual deception. In verses 24 to 27, he said, oh, this wire must be on my shoulder. Everyone then who hears these words of mine, there is an emphasis on hearing the words of Christ and doing the words of Christ. We'll be like, what will he be like, Jesus? He'll be like a man who built his house on the rock. Not a rock, not some rocks over here, but the rock. Pay attention. The rock. Verse 25, and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall. Why? Because it had been founded on the rock. 26, And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against the house and it fell and great was the fall of it. This is on the heels of what Jesus says in verses 21 to 23 where Jesus is talking about a real judgment seat where there will be real people that have to give an account for what they did 
on earth in the body. There's two judgment seats in the scriptures. One is the judgment seat of Christ, and that's for believers. It's not, an, it's not a damnation judgment seat. It's what did you do with your gifts judgment seat. And hopefully you're looking forward to that day. There's a great book. It's called The Believer's Payday. Really awesome. One of the Alpha Omega speakers talks about that. It's a book that we need to dust off and, and look at every once in a while. We want to look forward to that day when Jesus says, Well done, good and faithful servant. That's one judgment seat. The other judgment seat is in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment seat. And that is where if you're there, you're, there's no hope for you whatsoever. There's no purgatory. There's no, hey, my good works, I did my bad works. There's, this, there's no, I'm better than that guy. No, it's you alone with your heart exposed before the living God. And everything's laid bare before the one whom you must give an account. And if those sins are stacked up in front of you and you don't have Jesus' blood to cover those sins, then you are going to go to hell for eternity. And that sounds harsh, but that's what you need to know that that's what the Scripture's teaching. That's why this is not a game. This is real. How do I know that? Jesus rose from the dead. Jesus has all power and authority in heaven to grant new life. If you believe in the Son, you can have life. You can have it today. Don't waste your time with anything else. Come to Jesus Christ today. Get right with Jesus today. Today is the day of salvation. Lastly, I'm, gonna, I'm just going to pray and leave you guys to the rest of them. This is why we have full outlines. For those of you who are in life groups, there's a little, little th thing for, for you there. But let me pray with that in mind. I'm going to ask the worship team to come back up. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for this message. Lord, I know this is a hard one to preach. This is a part of scripture that's difficult. But I'm, I'm thankful that it's there nonetheless because our hearts are deceptive. And sometimes we believe what we want to believe. And Lord, here's the reality. That everything we're doing on this side of heaven has a purpose. Everything that we're doing on this side of heaven will be accounted for from you. So Lord, help us to just take that as a challenge. Help us, like Jonathan Edwards, to just have those great resolves to live for you, to give you glory, to give you honor, to give you praise, and to be challenged by this, not to beat ourselves up, become retrospective introverts, just beating ourselves up all the time, but no, rejoicing in the truth, rejoicing in the grace of Jesus Christ. For those of you in here this morning that don't know Jesus Christ as Lord, I ask you with all that I have in me to check your heart, to diagnose your own heart. Where are you? Get right with Jesus Christ. It's not about anything else at this point in your life, but it's about connecting with the living God, Jesus Christ. And we want to make ourselves available to you. We'll have people here, up here. Come. Who cares? Look around at everybody. People are mocking you. Look at their knees, because their knees will bow down to this king. You, come, hear the call of Jesus Christ. Come with everything you have, and he will accept you with open arms. Lord, we praise you, and we thank you. We give you all the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.